The Common Good Forum presents The New Economy, Keeping It Made in America, with Steve Ratner and Eric Spiegel, moderated by Brian Sullivan. Eric, thank you very much. That's Eric Spiegel. He's the President and CEO of Siemens USA. Welcome, Eric. And our other panelist, Stephen Ratner. Stephen, pleasure. Sullivan. Good morning. Hi, Good to see you. Uh, Frequent guests, sparring partners all morning, Joe, Chairman of Willett Advisors, reorganized the U.S. auto industry. Some people called the car czar. I don't know if I ever did, Stephen, but if I did, probably. there you go. You're the car. I probably did. You never know. Um, so this panel is called The New Economy, Keeping It Made in America. This one is, uh, I was very excited when, when they asked me to do this because this, this is a topic that is very close to my heart. Um, my family now lives in a small town called Winchester, Virginia, and, and they're the last incandescent light bulb factory in America used to be based there. And it, it left a couple of years ago, and now the bulbs are being made overseas, and the plant manager was my parents' neighbor. And so it was the last plant in America making incandescence, and it's gone, and my dad's neighbor lost his job, as, as did a, uh, about 200 other people, including some of my high school classmates. So. We got to figure out a way to keep jobs here. Not everybody is going to be a lawyer or a doctor, and that's and that's damn fine. Actually, probably do better with fewer lawyers. And I, I, by the way, I have a law degree, so I'm sort of insulting myself there. Uh, Eric and Steve, let's get going here. Um, you know, you know, Eric, it's interesting because we want everybody you ask, you talk to people. I've done shows on this. You know, we've done so many things, and you say. Would you prefer Made in America? You're darn right, I want Made in America. And then you ask them to pay 20% more for the product, and they say, well, no. You know, are we stuck in a culture of cheap? How do we get out of this? How do we get Made in America back, even if there's a slight pricing premium? Well, I, you know, I think for a lot of manufactured goods uh, now, uh, you know, it's not more expensive in the U.S. I mean, we've put several new plants uh, in the U.S. in the last few years. One is a big gas turbine plant in Charlotte. One, two, two wind plants in Iowa and Kansas. Uh, train facility out in Sacramento, and we can now manufacture here in the U.S. for about the same price as we can anywhere in the world. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that labor rates are going up in other parts of the yep. world. And by the way, I, I talk more about advanced manufacturing. I think for commodity items. Uh, that are very labor intensive. I'm not sure that's totally true yet, but for things that are more automated, more digital, uh, we're finding that we can do it here uh, for the same cost, and, and that includes almost everything we make here, and we've been adding manufacturing uh, across the country. So uh, I don't think that's gonna be true. I think as, as manufacturing changes dramatically, and we are, we are entering a new age, a digital age of manufacturing, uh, I think more and more is gonna be done here in the U.S. And, and so I think this issue about the, the, the premium for American goods. Now, what we do also find is around the world, we export about $5 billion a year out of the U.S. A lot of countries do like to receive high-quality products from the U.S. So the Made in America is, is still a good so, brand. So maybe there's a difference between the sort of the high-end, high-tech products that Siemens produces maybe versus just sort of commodity right. widgets or whatever. Right. You know, Stephen, I, I see you've got some, some charts. We're going to call you Mr. Chart. You always bring good information. Um, <laughs> we talk about the cost of manufacturing. A lot of that also has to do with the fact that natural gas has come down. In the short term, we've got lower manufacturing costs from the industrial perspective. Wages have gone up in other parts of the world. But manufacturers don't make decisions based on one- or two-year trends. They make them on five- and ten-year trends. Where do you see this shaking out? Well, can I go through my charts? The, three charts. You got three. Let's do them. You got them right there. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, just to put this in a um, just to put this in a broader perspective. You want that one? Manufacturing jobs lag. There's three of them. Yeah. Okay. Do the uh, well, what I wanted to do is just talk to, to sort of set the stage more broadly. I think Eric's made some good points about uh, about how things work on a granular level, including it's it's up what Siemens has done. But let me just sort of set the stage for what I see going on in the manufacturing sector. So this chart basically compares jobs in a variety of sectors going back to 2007, and it's sort of all indexed to 100. And so you can see that during the recession, the black line, which is all non-farm jobs, went down, as you would imagine, and it has been coming back up, and it is now just a bit above where it was back in 2007. It's about 2% more jobs than we had before the recession. The green line are education health jobs, the kinds of service jobs that are still being created in great numbers in America. And we can talk about whether they're good jobs or not good jobs, but they are jobs. The orange line is government, which has been pretty stable. It had a bit of an uptick during with the stimulus and then a downtick as state and local governments were forced to cut back and the sequestration in Washington and so on. Um, the purple line is professional and business, which had a little bit of a rocky uh, ride during the recession. Financial services was hit pretty bad and so on. But the line that really is the important one for this conversation is manufacturing. And you can see that basically it dropped very, very sharply in 2009. And what's lost a little bit in all the discussion about how manufacturing is coming back is that manufacturing jobs have actually increased more slowly than other jobs during the recovery. So manufacturing as a share of all the jobs is still declining. And we're something like 7 million jobs short uh, below where we were at the peak of our manufacturing employment. Um, and you, when, when, when was that? that? That was a long time ago. In the ago. 70s, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, now, Eric mentioned uh, labor costs. And this is, there's a sort of yin and the yang to labor costs. If we can go to the next slide. Because um, what the US has had, as you would imagine, historically high labor costs. Germany and France are actually higher, and they have their own set of issues. But you can see the developed world, uh, these are, these are uh, dollars per hour for labor costs. The US is $35. You can see the top five countries are all in the developed world, the US, Europe, Japan, places like that. And then you can see what happens in the emerging markets and how fast it drops off to Brazil, to Mexico, to China. And these are all, um, these are, this is something I saw when I was working on the auto rescue because GM had plants all over the world and these are the kinds of wage rates they were, they were paying in different parts of the world. And so you can imagine what was happening to auto production in different parts of the world. So the yin and the yang of this is we have high labor costs, but as Eric said, we're becoming more competitive. But, but if you turn to the next slide, last slide, you'll see how we're becoming more competitive, which is basically by cutting our wages. So at the top, you can see that on an inflation-adjusted basis, from the beginning of 2009, which was the beginning of the recession downturn, uh, to today, our total private wages for everybody have gone up just a little bit, a couple percent after inflation. But you can see that financial services has been very strong. That's obviously the recovery in financial services post the recession. Education is strong, information and the service jobs and so on. But then if you look at the bottom two bars, you see that it, manufacturing wages are actually down 1.3%. And if you look at the auto industry, which is particularly near and dear to my heart, you can see that wages are actually down 10% on an inflation-adjusted basis. We had to do a lot of stuff, which I won't get into, I'm happy to get into later if you want, but I'm not going to take time now, in terms of asking workers to take lower pay in order to become competitive. And so I think as Eric sort of referred to this, the yin and the yang is that 
we can become more competitive, and we have become more competitive, but there is a big cost to us becoming more competitive, which is, um, which is lower wages. And I just finally want to underscore one point Eric made, which is that I, I agree with him that there's a lot of things, good things, that can happen and are happening here in advanced manufacturing. But as Eric said, those jobs are not very labor intensive, i.e. they don't employ a lot of workers. And, the, and so you, you could take an automobile factory that used to employ 2,000 workers, and now it's being replaced by some kind of 3D printing or advanced manufacturing facility that employs 200 workers. And so we really, um, there are some good things happening here. I'm, I don't mean to be the, uh, the pessimist or, the, or be so negative, but I also want people to understand in the real world what is actually uh, going on out there. Yeah, and, and, it, and it is going on out there. And we can sit here in the Waldorf and talk about it. I mean, for an example, you know, I, I vacation in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Okay, it's, it's, a, not, a very, it's not a very well-off area. And you talk to people, and they, they're shopping at a big box store, and they have no money. And you say, why are you shopping here? Well, I lost my job at the factory. Why did you lose your job at the factory? Well, it moved overseas. Why did it move overseas? Because the big box store wanted lower prices. So now you're forced to shop at certain stores because you don't have a job that pays what it was because the factory that made the stuff that you're now buying is over there. Yeah. Whose fault is that? I don't know. Is it the consumer's fault for not paying more? I mean, so it sounds like what you guys have talked about, Eric, is manufacturing isn't dead in America, but is manufacturing of certain things dead in America? And how much? I mean, the consumer. We've got to take a little responsibility. Yeah, I, I, maybe a couple comments, and, and I agree with the numbers that Steve was showing. I, I think one of the things um, that we've been talk, out talking a lot about is that as you move into this digital age, and, and the auto industry is one of the leading uh, industries for moving into this digital age, you're actually gonna have less people on the plant floor. And by the way, the skills that are required for working on the plant floor are going up dramatically. So even people on the plant floor, most companies would say need some kind of an associate's degree or some kind of advanced training in some types of engineering, computer science, and computer engineering, et cetera. But a lot of those jobs that used to be on the plant floor are now moving into the IT space, into the technology space. Now, not all of them, to, to Steve's point, we're not going to replace all of those jobs because productivity, uh, the, the automation and the technology is driving huge productivity gains. I think the auto industry has seen productivity gains of something like 5x over the last 20 years. Uh, in terms of the, the uh, input per output. So, so huge productivity gains, a lot of that's because of automation and technology. But the skills that are required in the industry are, are much greater now. So there's a lot of people now who are sitting there developing software. We're one of the leading providers of product lifecycle management software, which is now you're getting to a point where you can virtually design and engineer cars, space rockets, if you take a look at companies like SpaceX, the new age, innovators that are developing moving in the space industry, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, are using these new technologies to design rockets, etc., uh, design cars, design golf clubs. We work with a lot of golf club companies. Um, they're designing those things virtually and they can make them on the shop floor in, in real time without setup costs. We're moving very quickly to what's called lot size one, which means I design it on a computer in 3D, I can make it on the shop floor used to be you'd have to reset all the equipment to do those kind of things. You know, if you took operations like I did in business school 30 years ago, you studied all that stuff. Today, we're moving very rapidly to an environment where you don't have to do that. And so what you're seeing is huge productivity gains, and you're seeing very disruptive technologies coming in. So you're going to see big changes. 
faster, um, faster production, less setup time, less engineering hours required, which is one of the reasons why a lot of these new disruptive companies are able to attack existing companies, mm -hmm. and you're going to see that in a big way. But the U.S. has a big advantage here. I mean, the U.S., 70% of all the software in the world is developed here. Uh, this is an innovative market. You've got access to venture capital. You've got IP protection. Uh, we believe this is the best country in the world to, to tackle this problem across a wide set of industries. And that's why we believe a lot of manufacturing is going to be done here. It's going to be very different than the old world manufacturing. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, and the old steel mills of yesterday and the way they were run with a lot of manual labor, that, that labor all needs to have a lot of skills around process control. There's a new plant, just one quick story, being built in Pittsburgh by Allegheny Technologies, which is a large specialty steel company. It's the, it's the most automated, most sophisticated hot-rolled steel plant in the world just opened a few months ago. They're actually making hot-rolled steel for countries around the world, including places like Korea and Asia. Now, who thought 10 years ago we would be making steel in this country, specialty steel, in totally automated plants and shipping it around the world? Nobody would have guessed that. Now, part of it is because of the low energy costs we have. I mean, that plant's taking gas from the Marsalis. So we have a cost advantage there, but also because it's the most automated factory in the world. I mean, you don't see as many people on the shop floor, but you see a lot of people in the control room, a lot of engineers, a lot of IT yeah. specialists, et cetera. So the jobs are changing. So we need to start changing the way we train people for these new jobs. There are going to be different jobs in the future than the manual labor jobs. Yeah, and I know that Lordstown plant, the GM plant there, makes and it's, yeah. I'll tell you, when there was no cars in the parking lot, and I drive by there every year on my way to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan to see that yeah. parking lot empty is a damn sad thing. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you and I are, <clears throat> from similar right. areas where, right. you know, my college class was 500 graduates, 51 of us went to college. Right. And, and we're all Virginia, Jameswood High School. I mean, we're, you know, where where, where, where did else go? So it's a subject there. So, but let's, Stephen, uh, not to be philosophical, but but um, productivity gains. You know, we in the media like to use that. It's a productivity gain. It's a good thing because the word gain is in it. And we're being productive. There's downsides to productivity gains, are there not? Well, I think, that, I, I think that question wraps into your earlier comment in a way about who's shopping where and if people don't have money to shop at these stores, they won't exist. Look, at, at the, there's also, there is a yin and, and a yang to productivity gains, but fundamentally, unless you have productivity gains, you, can, you can't have people's incomes go up. Productivity is ultimately, or incomes are ultimately tied to productivity, and I think that's, uh, should be fairly fairly obvious that the more a worker can produce, the more he can get paid. Now, I know that uh, it has been much talked about in recent years that there have continued to be productivity gains, as Eric said, and they have not filtered down to the worker. As some of my slides show, there's been a bit of a disconnect uh, that has occurred, and that has to do with globalization and competition and declining unionization, a lot of things we can talk about. but. But when people say, you know, I'm worried about the robots and I'm worried about all this automation because it's going to put people out of work uh, as productivity grows, that all may be true, but you have to have it for an economy to prosper. And the key to then making this all work is to find other things for the workers to do who no longer have jobs because productivity has improved by having other kinds of, whether it's manufacturing or services, having other kinds of industries develop. And so that's the challenge we face and where the private sector obviously has to take the lead or where the things government can do as well to either make it more difficult or less difficult. Um, I'll give you just one example at the moment because it's much in the news, but this, um, some of the commentary around this Amtrak train crash uh, that occurred yesterday, the day before yesterday, 
revolves around infrastructure and the quality of the amount of investing that we've done in our economy. And the fact is that when you look at the numbers, our uh, public spending, whether it's federal government, state, local, on infrastructure, which is a key component of manufacturing business being able to function, of an economy being able to function, has been declining as a percent of the size of our economy. It went up a bit during 2009 with the stimulus, but broadly speaking, it's down to about one and I think one and a half percent of our total economy size is spent this way, and that compares to two and a half percent if you go back 20 years. So we've been squeezing this out of our public spending, and the consequences for the economy, uh, I think, have been pretty are, are and will be pretty bad. You know, and the thing about the common good here is that what you got with Patricia and the team are trying to put together is nonpartisan. The roads are nonpartisan, right? Uh, I'm not, this is my only pay, Patricia, is that I'm going to tease my show today. We're doing a segment on the tunnel going into New York, and it's not on the back of the record. We, it's been a topic of mine for years because I live in New Jersey, and I was for six years a daily New Jersey transit commuter. I'm going to tell you something. Watch the show today. We got to, if, 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 if one of the two train tunnels going into New York City is shut down, it's an economic catastrophe. Economic catastrophe, okay? 800,000 people a day are coming into New York City from New Jersey. It's the, it would be the 11th largest city in the United States. Imagine if half the capacity to move those people is shut off. It's, it's, and yet, you know, we talk about it. How do we get it done? I mean, and I'm not, this is not a partisan thing. There's Republicans, Democrats, independents. Everybody's on that train or that bus coming into Manhattan. We're all vested in this, but it's a cost issue. New Jersey, I mean, you know, we've got a lot of different organizations trying to oversee this. How do we fix this, Eric? I'm sure you'd like to sell some trains. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, one thing I would say is um, because of Superstorm Sandy and, and other uh, catastrophes like that, uh, people are kind of rethinking how they rebuild. We can't just keep rebuilding things the way they are. If you take a look at what happened during that, yes, we had a lot of problems with the tunnels getting people in and out of the city, many cities along the Northeast Corridor, but also we had power outages. We have centralized power today. The power was out. A lot of the backup generators were, of course, in the basements of your, your state is the reason I live in New Jersey. Right. My wife and I were living in Brooklyn. She was pregnant. 2003, you guys had some blowout in Cleveland yeah. that shut down the entire East Coast. And my wife had to walk six months pregnant from Midtown Manhattan to Park Slope, Brooklyn in 90 degree weather. And she said, we're getting the hell out of this, this city. So thank you. I had to move to New Jersey because of you. It's your fault. Uh, and now your trains are pulling me into the city. So you win either way. Um, but uh, you get my point. Like, but, this but, is, this is think, a disgrace. Think, but, but I think what's happening because of that is people are moving to more decentralized power. I mean, we've got a huge pipeline now of power projects where hospitals, colleges, cities, military bases want to put their own power so that they, are, they can uh, protect themselves against, you know, be more resilient against those kinds of outages. Now, the tunnel is a whole different issue. Right, that's going to require a whole different solution yeah. in terms of and it's you know you know and, and you know we're not talking about infrastructure but infrastructure could be a huge source of jobs so that's sort of the segue to it you know it's like your your parent company is German right and it's right. interesting you know uh, we have a, a German girl lives with us my wife works she's our au pair and she asked a very s simple and smart question to me a couple of months ago when we lost power why are the power lines above ground <laughs> you right Sir Harry you get that why, why aren't they underground she, we don't have this problem in Germany you know what why are so you look at all the possible jobs, Stephen, that we could create just doing things that would benefit the country and productivity. The problem is money. Who pays for this stuff? How do we bring the jobs back that way? Well, I don't want to, uh, I know this is a nonpartisan setting, and I, so I don't want to make this partisan. I don't want to sound partisan, but. But it's but, going to. But, well, you know, you've got to deal with the world as it is, not as you wish it were. And the fact is that there are a group of 
uh, our elected representatives who believe that government should simply do less and spend less, and that that that, that will ultimately be the path to faster growth. That if you shrink government, get it out of the, get it out of the, uh, the business of doing all this stuff, that ultimately the economy will grow faster. And so. I don't have to agree with that view, but that has been the prevailing view for the last few years. And so government spending has been squeezed and squeezed. And where it's been mostly squeezed has been exactly in the, it's been in exactly the wrong places. If you said to me, let's cut government spending, we have to cut government spending. I said, okay, fine, we'll cut government spending. And I would be looking at a whole bunch of programs, the so-called entitlement programs, Medicare, Social Security, things like that, which do need to be reformed. But instead, nobody wants to touch any of those. So the only things that get cut are exactly the things you don't want to get cut, which are things that involve investing in our future. Their R&D, their infrastructure, their education, all the things that you think that we actually should be spending money on are the things that are actually getting cut. And the things that could be cut, or at least the rate of growth could be reduced, nobody wants to touch. So this is all part of the dysfunctionality in Washington at the moment. But you know, to, to be fair, and Eric, I, I mean, I don't care who who, you know, I don't care if it's government or private sector. It's, if it's George, you know, Richard Branson's Virgin Trains or New Jersey Transit, as long as the train gets me there on time, the power lines work. I mean, losing power, and you know, this kind of stuff. So, you guys, I'm sure, have done some analysis on the the how much how many jobs we could bring manufacturing we could bring back with just a a drop in the bucket of infrastructure spending. I'm sure. Well, uh, it's got to be huge because the numbers are massive. I mean, almost every single facility that we've built or upgraded in the U.S. and we've invested over 25 billion in the last decade in the U.S. Almost every single facility we've had to go in and reopen a retired rail spur, uh, upgrade the roads or the on ramps and things so that we can get and move product both coming into the manufacturing facility and also going out. Uh, you know, fortunately, some states and other places are spending money on ports and things like that because we need to upgrade the ports. I mean, for example, we've got this, they're, they're basically upgrading the Panama Canal for these Panamax tankers that yep. come through. There's only, I think, two ports between Houston and, and New England that can handle the Panamax. So, you know, <laughs> the issue is how much advantage is that gonna provide for the U.S.? So, I think there's a lot of these things which the, the, the state and federal government is gonna have to get involved in. We are, however, pushing forward with a lot of private investment. I'll give you one good example in Florida. We're in the middle of, of, we're supplying the trains to a group uh, that's called All Aboard Florida, which is putting in a privately funded and privately owned higher speed train. I didn't say high speed, higher speed train. Yeah, because if you've been to Japan or Europe, you know that our high speed rail here is, right. is The not Germans, bad. when you say high speed, they say that's not high speed yet. But anyway, from Orlando to Miami, and that's going to be privately funded. Um, and uh, so I think there's an opportunity for more of that. But a lot of this is uh, is going to have to find a way uh, to be you know to be funded. But, but keeping with the theme as we wrap up, can you can you can you build the stuff that you want to build in America? Can you hire the people? Can you can you find skilled workers? Every time I get somebody on the show that says I can't find skilled workers, I get a million people that say that's garbage. That there's plenty of skilled workers. Well, it's here. absolutely not garbage. I mean, uh, I've talked a lot about the last couple of facilities we built in Charlotte, North Carolina, for example, created a, a new gas turbine, world-class gas turbine facility. We had to hire about a thousand people. We started out interviewing ten thousand people. Uh, six, six or seven thousand people got eliminated because they couldn't pass a remedial reading, math, and and uh, uh, technology test. And then, secondly, when you go to hire, you have big problems with uh, with alcohol and drug testing. Right? And so then you end up, we get to the end, and we find people that we can actually qualify to hire. Then we've got to put them through a year-long training program to be able to work in the plant. So anyone who thinks that you can open a modern advanced manufacturing plant and you can go out and hire several hundred people and stick them in tomorrow 
is just doesn't understand the manufacturing today. These jobs are very different. The people out there, even who worked in manufacturing, it's a different manufacturing but world than it is today. So we have to, we have to, the companies, I'm, put, I'm not putting this on the government, I'm saying companies need to take more ownership of training the, training the workforce of the future. And yeah. that's what we're doing. I'm glad to hear you say that, because Stephen, I'll let you wrap it up. But you know, it, it's we, we have had people come on CBC and they complain they can't find people, and I hear you, and, and I believe it because you hear it enough. But what I've also said is, train don't complain. Like I mean, even the government's got a role, but corporate America has a role to to spend some money and make these and, and train people too. They can't just rely on other people and say, well, why can't find any workers? Well, go make the workers. Right. Well, sure. And so when Volkswagen came to Chattanooga and they hired 2,000 people, it was a similar story to what Eric said. They actually couldn't find 2,000 that met all these qualifications. And so they ended up uh, bringing in trainers from Germany, from their home base, to come in and train these workers. So corporate America is doing it when they have to do it. But, but the, the broader uh, issues are of education, of things like alcohol and drug dependency, corporate America is not going to solve those problems. It can help, but you know, government does have a role in all this stuff and it's not and it's not fully performing it so look it, there are two sides and there's certainly parts of the country where there are plenty of workers who uh, are qualified and skilled but there are other parts where there aren't and there's clearly a skills gap and the other thing just to wrap up which i know we're not going to have time to get into but the other thing that bears on this is uh, the immigration issue and particularly the issue of h1b visas the visas for skilled immigrants who really could perform a lot of the functions that eric's been talking about and and really lead to, to other jobs for people who don't even have those skills by the, by the efforts that they can make in the more technical areas. In fact, when you said we don't have any time, you meant it because this panel's over. We have no time. Uh, it could be an hours or days long panel. This topic is huge. It's not going away. Um, I thought we made some good points. You guys made some, some excellent points as well. A lot of work to be done. Hopefully we can get it done. Otherwise, I'll see you in New Jersey because I'll never come to New York City again because <laughs> I'll have to walk. That'll be our, our loss. I'm sure, I sense sarcasm. <laughs> Stephen and Eric, thank you very much. Thank you, all. Thank you. For more information about the common good, please visit our website at www.thecommongoodusa.org.